0: Hey, welcome to the Celebration Church podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and to trust him more. To keep up with us or to get more information, visit CelebrationChurchLive.com. We're in a sermon series that we are wrapping up right now that we're calling Jesus Said What? That's the way Pastor Brandon has been saying it. That was my best impersonation of him. Jesus said what, and what we're really looking at is the hard and problematic things that Jesus spoke in the scriptures. And today, I honestly think we are gonna take a look at probably the most powerful yet problematic thing Jesus ever said in his three-year earthly ministry. The most powerful, yet problematic thing Jesus ever said. And we find it in John chapter 14. I want to start reading at verse four for context. John chapter 14, we'll start reading at verse four. It says this, and Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, you got to love Thomas. You got to love Thomas. You got to love Thomas. Lord, um, <laughs> we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one, here's the kicker. This is the thing we are zeroing in on this morning. And no one comes to the father except through me and no one can come to the Father except through me. One of the most powerful but problematic things Jesus ever said. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you now for the couple moments we are going to share coming around your word. Lord, I pray that you would have your way in this service this morning. God, we didn't come here to just per- perpetuate a Christian religion. We came here to encounter the God of the universe. And Lord, I pray that right now every syllable that is meant to be received would be received this morning. Lord, I thank you that as the seed of your word goes out, it falls on good ground. And Lord, I thank you that right now if that ground came in frustrated, you calm it. Lord, right now if there's a mind that's frazzled and wondering about tomorrow, Lord, help them zero in and take take full, take full ramification of today. Lord, don't let the devil steal one iota of what you have for us here and now. Lord, put me on like a glove and do what only you can do. And it is in the mighty name of Jesus that I pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen. I will never forget being 10 years old and being rudely awakened by my father okay was rudely awakened by my father ten years old on a Saturday morning of all mornings okay he comes and wakes me up rudely now what you have to understand is at this time my dad was training for a decathlon okay he was gonna it was gonna be this run bike run and he was in the middle of training for it okay so he comes and he wakes me up on a Saturday he says hey Keenan and I'm wiping the sleep <laughs> out of my ten year old eyes and I, he said Keenan I'm about to go run. I'm about to go train. I'm going to run a 5k. Do you want to come with me? You can ride your bike next to me. I said, sure. So I roll out of bed and I go and get my bike ready. Now I have to tell you, I had the coolest bike. I had the coolest bike. It was a green BMX bike. Okay. That I could do no tricks on none. I just rode it. As if it were a normal stationary even bike, okay. It was a normal bike, but it was BMX, okay. And the really cool part about it was it had pegs on the back. It had pegs, so I could have given you a lift this morning. I could have pedaled you all the way to church. Um, my best friend Jonathan really enjoyed those pegs. And um, so you know, we wake up and it's you know we're gonna go do this. And so my dad's like, "All right, I-, I plotted this this course. It's a 5K, and it ends back at the house, okay? It ends back at the house." I was like, "Okay." So all of a sudden we get going. And then I remembered, because I had a foggy brain, sleep brain, right? And I remembered, my dad does not have an athletic bone in his body. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, he is running at a snail's pace, okay? I don't know if you've seen The Office, but like Michael Scott, shut the, shut the, shut the, the, it's like four of you are unsaved and laughed at that joke, okay? All the rest of you read your Bible when that came out but he's running really slow is what I'm trying to say. He's just running really slow. But here's the thing, I'm on a bike and speed helps a bike stay up, okay? Like it just, it really does help. So I'm sitting and riding beside him just doing this, like just trying to keep the bike on its two wheels, just moving the handlebars until finally we hit a straightaway, no turns, a straightaway. And I just decide to book it. Right, And I leave him in my BMX peg dust, all right? I take off and I'm going down that straightaway as fast as I can until all of a sudden the straightaway does this and it forks. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh dang, are we going left or are we going right? And I did not know. So all of a sudden I did the most logical thing I could do. I just parked my bike. and waited for my dad to catch up five years later, okay? Waited for my dad to catch up, and all of a sudden he comes running. And I hear you know, I of the Tiger playing in his headphones, and all of a sudden he goes left, and I'm like, okay, it's left. And so I jump back on my bike, and I'm pedaling, and sure enough, having a hard time keeping it up. So I decide on the next straightaway, I'm gonna do it again, and on the next straightaway, I book it, leaving him in the dust until finally that straightaway forks as well. And I'm sitting there at the street To him, like okay, it was left last time, but it could be right this time. Like, I I I don't I don't know. So I sat there at the intersection and waited for Pastor Brandon to come up behind me, and finally he went right. No word of a lie. I did this the entire 5K, okay, the entire 3.2 miles. I did this every straightaway. I'd find myself waiting at an intersection so my dad could show me which way to go. And here is why I found myself waiting at every single intersection it's because I knew two things. I knew this that all roads lead somewhere, but not all roads lead home. All roads lead somewhere but not all roads lead home. And can I tell you this morning, that is exactly what Jesus is saying in John 14 and verse six. He's saying all roads will take you somewhere, but there is but one road that will lead you home. And it's not a road called academics. And it's not a road called success. And it's not a road called the corporate ladder. And it's not even a road called religious activity. It is a road by name of Jesus, Jesus is the only way home. Jesus is saying there's not another way. There's not another route. There is but one way home. Can I tell you this morning, Jesus is the only way you are gonna be able to stand before a holy and righteous God and receive a verdict that calls you holy and righteous. Jesus is the only way that is gonna happen. And can I tell you right now, you will stand before God one day. I wanna make it unequivocally clear, the same way Jesus did. You will stand before God, but there is only one way you can stand before God and find favor, it is in the man, yes. Jesus Christ. Yes. That's the way, but here's the problem. The statement like this is extremely problematic and it was in Jesus's day, but it still is today in 2023. This is extremely problematic. And for those of you who don't understand why it's problematic, you are a Christian. Because if you are not a Christian, you find this to be problematic. Because non-Christians and people just looking in from the outside at our Christian culture and at our Christian book and at our Christian teachings, they would say, Jesus is exclusive. Look at him by nature of saying he is the only way to God, he is naturally, listen to me, he's naturally excluding every other way you could possibly think you can make it there. This statement by nature is an exclusive statement. Jesus, by saying he is the only way, is saying any other way the human brain can think it might lead to home, it doesn't lead home. I don't care what belief system you were handed when you were born. I don't care what religious system you are a part of. It doesn't lead to God. And people of other ideologies and people of other thinking processes and people of other belief systems look at this statement of Jesus and say, look at those Christians. They're so narrow minded. They're narrow minded. Jesus is being exclusive. But can I tell you this morning, don't you dare let somebody who doesn't know your Jesus, let alone love your Jesus, tell you what Jesus is trying to say. Let a gospel preacher tell you what Jesus is trying to say. He's not trying to be exclusive, though this is by nature an exclusive statement. The emphasis here, the goal here is not to exclude. You know what he's doing? He's not trying to be exclusive. exclusive. He's being specific. That's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to be specific. Imagine with me that after the service, you come up to me and you go, "Keenan, what's up, dude? And we have a great conversation. And I go, you know what? I gotta go, but I would love to continue this. Why don't you just come by my house on Wednesday? I'll cook you up some burgers. We'll have some dogs. We'll even read the Bible. It'll be a grand old time. Just come by my house. I live over in College Hills. And you go, okay, like, yeah. Like, I'd I'd love to come to your house, Keenan." And all of a sudden, Wednesday comes. It's time for you to come to my house. And you jump in your car. You get in your little Prius, and you drive your little self over to College Hills. And you go, "Oh shoot, I think Keenan forgot to tell me the exact street he lives on. Keenan didn't give me the street, let alone the house number." So all of a sudden, you pull your phone out and you begin to call me. And you say, "Hey Keenan, I'm on my way. We're gonna have the burgers. We're gonna have the dogs. We'll read the Bible. It's gonna be a grand old time." I'm in College Hills in my Prius, but. What street do you live on? I think you forgot to tell me. And then all of a sudden I go, oh, I didn't forget to tell you. I just feel it would be inappropriate to exclude all the other streets. There are so many amazing streets in College Hills. Who am I to exclude you and tell you to not drive on those other streets? Here's what you need to do. I don't wanna be offensive to the other streets. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'll just tell you this. Drive on whatever street feels good to you and maybe you'll make it here. You'd be like, Kenan, cut the crap, all right? This ain't funny. You'd say, Kenan, I don't care what street feels good to me. I care which street leads to you. And for whatever reason, we want specific directions on how to make it everywhere except heaven. Come on, preach. I don't understand this. We want specific instructions, specific directions on how to get everywhere except the place we were born for, except for our eternity. We think, oh, well, I think all roads just ought to lead to heaven. I think at the end of the day, everyone ought to make it. The Bible doesn't say everyone makes it. The Bible says it's God's heart that none should perish, but sadly God has given man free will. And the sad part of it is man can now use that free will to reject the God who gave it to him. And countless time after countless time, and maybe you would even find yourself being that person this morning, using your own free will to walk away from a God who desperately wants a connection with you. Because you're banking on your good deeds. Can I tell you right now, the Bible doesn't say, as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you can make it into heaven. Because listen to me, I'm gonna make it really frank. God doesn't give a rip about your good deeds as long as you are still dead in your sin. God doesn't care about your good deeds as long as you are still dead in your sin. The Bible doesn't say Jesus came to make bad people good. It's that he came to make dead people alive. Your relationship with sin has nothing to do with how bad you are and everything to do with how dead you are. You don't need behavior modification, you need soul resurrection. That's what you need. And it doesn't matter how many good deeds you do, at the end of the day, it won't get it done. Your Christian religion and your Christian do-good-isms and your Bible verses you have memorized and the dollars you have donated to Christian organizations can do nothing more for your salvation than a trip to Mecca, a Shinto shrine, or kissing five Hindu cows. It won't get you there. None of it opens the door because, because only Jesus is the door. And Jesus doesn't, listen to me, he doesn't want you being uncertain if, if, of if you're going to make it to him or not because ambiguity leads to uncertainty. Yeah. That's why Jesus doesn't keep it vague. Because Jesus, can I tell you what Jesus is doing? Can I tell you what he's doing? Everyone wants to go, oh, Jesus is exclusionary. Oh, Jesus, he's such a bigot. He's trying to make sure no one's excluded. That's what he's doing. He's saying, I don't want it to just be the deeply devoted insiders to my religion that can make it all the way home. I want people who are on the fringe. I want people on the outside to be able to make it inside. So I'm gonna be specific. Because we saw, listen to me, we saw what happens when Jesus keeps things vague. That's why I included verse four in Thomas. Because Jesus says this in verse four, you know the way to where I'm going. Kind of like wink, wink. You know what Thomas doesn't do? He doesn't go, Jesus, I'm totally picking up what you're putting down. I am smelling what you are stepping in. He doesn't do that at all. He doesn't say, "Oh Jesus, I, I I remember that one little weird sidebar conversation. You're pulling your earlobe. That must mean Avenue L lobe Avenue L. That's where you live. Okay, we'll go there." No, Jesus keeps it vague. And what does Thomas do? No, we don't. We don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. I don't know if maybe Peter knows, but I don't know where you're going. So Jesus says, "Okay, I can't leave it ambiguous. Here it is, very specifically. I am the way, and I am the truth." and I am the life, and no one can come to God except by me. You know why people have a hard time grabbing onto this truth? It's not because Jesus isn't specific enough. It's because they refuse to let go of the lie that they'll get there anyway, even without him. That's why. It's not because Jesus isn't specific enough. Jesus makes it very clear. There is not another way to word this statement where it could be even more clear. It's because people won't let go of their lie. Listen to me, you can't grab onto the truth as long as you are death-clenching a lie. If I wanna hand you $100, but you are death-gripping $5, you must first lay down the $5 in order to have an open hand to receive the hundred. You've gotta let go of your lie in order to be positioned to receive the truth. And as long as you are still clenching a lie, you'll never receive the truth. And we see this on full display in John chapter 8. John chapter eight, Jesus drops probably the most famous truth verse. He says this, John chapter eight, verse 31. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching. Verse 32 is the kicker. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, before I explain this, let me show you what I have heard so many times. I have heard this verse misquoted or rather half quoted my whole life because people quote this verse and they go, the truth will set you free. Jesus doesn't just say the truth will set you free. He says, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. The only truth that has the power to set you free is the truth that you know. And listen to me, this is not a surface level understanding of the truth. That's not what it means to know the truth. This idea of knowing the truth means to be intimate with the truth. It's the same way Adam knew Eve. They were intimate. It means to intimately know the truth. It means to grab onto this truth and hold on to it for dear life, to be fully embracing of the truth. But as long as you won't let go of your lie, you can't embrace the truth that will set you free. And there's a an dark illustration of this that follows because Jesus says this and then the pharisees come out of the woodworks and they say this in verse 33 but we are descendants of Abraham I don't know why I give them a British accent just makes them sound pretentious I I I don't know (laughs) we are descendants of Abraham (laughs) listen to this part we've never been slaves to anyone What do you mean? You will be set free. Now I'll be honest with you. I have to imagine what Jesus's face is like here in this moment because I got a grown-up Bible. Okay, it doesn't have pictures. So I got to imagine what Jesus's face is doing in this moment. But if my Bible did have pictures and I could zero in on this moment, I think Jesus would be like. (laughs) He said, what? (laughs) You said you've never been enslaved to anyone. (laughs) He did not just say that. (laughs) You know why I think Jesus would react that way? because I know the history of these people. You remember a little guy named Moses? You know why God raised him up? Because the Hebrew people were enslaved to Egypt. So God raised up a deliverer named Moses, but then later they find themselves yet again enslaved to Babylon. But then Babylon's conquered, but yet they still don't find their way out of slavery because the people who conquered Babylon conquered them. And then the people who conquered that nation conquered them. And then the people who conquered that nation kept them enslaved. And here's the real irony. The people who are saying, we've never been enslaved to anyone are currently enslaved to Rome. They are right now under Roman occupation. There's a Roman guard over there. And while he's saying, we've never been enslaved to anyone, he keeps checking out of the corner of his eye, making sure the guard over there is cool with what he's doing. They are currently enslaved. You know how enslaved they were? When these dudes who uttered this, wanted to kill Jesus, they didn't have the power to. So they had to go before a guy named Pontius Pilate and beg him to kill Jesus because they didn't even have the power to carry it out because they are in this moment enslaved but telling Jesus we've never been enslaved to anyone it's really hard to grab onto the truth when you are clutching a lie and I wonder what lie you are clutching this morning that might be cutting you off from the truth that God has for you (laughs) what lie are you repeating so loud it is drowning out the truth of God Because you can't grab onto the truth until you first let go of your lie. And if you are gonna grab onto the truth that Jesus is the only way to God, you're gonna have to let go of the lie that Jesus isn't God. That's the lie you're gonna have to let go of. Because people who believe Jesus isn't God, you know one of the things they do? They say this, oh yeah, Christians claim that Jesus is God, but you know what, Jesus never claimed to be God. Do you know that that's being questioned right now? People are making TikToks about it and they're going viral. And just because they go viral doesn't mean they're valid. I just want you to know that. It may go viral, but it ain't valid. These people are saying, Jesus never claimed to be God. I'm like, bro, you you had whole pages of your Bible ripped out. Like John 17 must not be in your Bible. Did Jesus claim to be God? Well, let's let Jesus speak for himself. John chapter 10 and verse 30 says this, I and the father are one. I and the father are one. The Greek word here, one, the original language, it literally means we are the same in nature. We are the same, here it is, species, if you will. We are the same. We are both God. And you know how I know the people who heard Jesus said this, took it that he was claiming to be God? He says this and they go, give me a rock. We're gonna stone you. That's literally what they say to Jesus. You are blasphemous. Let us get a rock. You're a man claiming to be God. And you know, the most gangster thing Jesus does is he somehow gets out of there without being stoned. Like seriously, he evades him. The people who heard Jesus say this took it as though he was claiming to be God. But people want to be like, he doesn't really mean that he's God. He's claiming to be God. As if John 10:30 wasn't enough. Let's go to John 14 and verse nine. John 14, nine says this, whoever has seen me has seen the father. He doesn't say, hey, I'm a really striking lookalike. I'm a crazy doppelganger (laughs) of the father. You know, like if you put your head on a baseball bat, spin around three times, squint in the distance and stare at me long enough, I'll eventually look like the father. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? You want to see what the father looks like? Imagine me, but 50 years older with a big Gandalf beard and a scepter in my hand. That's what the father looks like. He doesn't say, hey, the father is a striking, weird resemblance of me. He says, if you've seen me, you don't even need to see the father because you have seen the father because I and the father are one. Did Jesus claim to be God? Yes. Unequivocally. It's unarguable. He claimed to be God, and now the second lie we're gonna to have to let go of is, okay, well, maybe he claimed it, but is there any evidence that Jesus is God? There's no evidence Jesus is actually God, and can I tell you, there is, and for the last remaining moments that we share, I wanna give you four evidences I believe that prove Jesus is who he said he is. The first evidence is no doubt his miracles, the miracles of Jesus. You know, the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would verify his Messiahship by miracles. You don't believe me? Go read Isaiah 35. It doesn't just say, hey, the Messiah is gonna do the miraculous and Jesus does miraculous looking things. It literally verbatim lists miracles the Messiah will do. And then if you read the gospels, you see Jesus literally doing those exact miracles. It's verbatim the same. But not only did the Old Testament prophesy it, here's the crazy thing. Here's the thing that convinces me of Jesus's miracles legitimacy. He didn't just do miracles in front of a little group who already believed in him. Therefore, they were easy to trick. He did miracles right under the nose of his skeptics. He didn't hide one thing. He didn't say, oh, we're gonna do the miracle thing for people who are easy to fool. They're kind of dumb, you know, they're, they're not all there. It'd be easy to get them to buy in. He says, I'll do it to people who want to poke a hole in my ministry. I'll do it right in front of you, sir. And guess what? You can scour the scriptures. I encourage you to try. You will not find one time that Jesus's skeptics ever challenged the legitimacy of Jesus's miracles. Not one time. They go, oh, dang, <laughs> That's a, that was a withered hand. And now it's not, okay? They, they, they can't argue. Jesus' miracle working power is airtight. You, you know how airtight it was? They didn't poke a hole in it. The only thing they could get mad about was the fact that he did it on the wrong day. Yeah, he healed his hand, but he did it on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do any works on the Sabbath. And I kind of want to tell these jokers, it would have been a work for you, but it's not a work for God because God just has the power to do it. <laughs> it ain't a work. And you know what? Jesus did miracles on the Sabbath on purpose. Jesus says, you know what? Today, I feel like getting a two for one deal. I'm gonna heal his hand and reveal his heart at the same time. I'm gonna get two birds with one stone. (laughs) Is what Jesus is doing. He's doing these things on purpose. And even Jesus said his miracles would verify he is who he said he is. Let's go to John 10, 37. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe in me. Verse 38, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus said, you don't wanna take my word for it? Look what I'm doing. My miracles are evidence that I am who I say I am. That's the first evidence. The second evidence I'd like to present to you this morning are the character witnesses of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that the closer you get to somebody, the more of their flaws you see. Typically, the closer you get in relationship to somebody, the more of their flaws you begin to see. You know, like you may still love them, but you now have to lean into your love for them a little bit more, right? It's like, dang, there's a whole lot of human in this. (laughs) This is one of the reasons why there's a quote, never meet your heroes, because they'll let you down. You'll see they're just people just like you. Every time you get closer to people, you see more of their flaws, but it wasn't so with Jesus. The closer people got to him, it wasn't that they saw him as less of God. The more they got close, the more of God they saw. I'll prove it to you. Jesus' own mom believed he was God. His own mother, the mother who birthed him and saw him as a toddler in the quote unquote terrible twos was like, yeah, this dude's God. My boy's God. And some of you are like, Kenan, that's not very good. Moms, are, m- moms believe all sorts of weird things about their kids. My mom believes I have the voice of Mariah Carey. And the only thing Carey about me is that I can't carry a tune in a bucket. <laughs> You're like, moms believe all sorts of weird things out of their love. Okay, I'll give it to you, I'll give it to you, calm down. But it wasn't just Mary he had convinced. His Listen to this, his own brother believed he was God. Jesus had a brother named James. And it's one thing to dupe your mom. It's a whole nother thing to dupe your brother. It's a whole nother thing to get your brother to believe you are God. I have two younger brothers and I would love to believe that they would tell you, oh yeah, Kenan's a man of God, but they will never tell you, you know what? After, after 28 years of Kenan's life, I think he might be God. Like I think Kenan might be the second coming. They will never say that because it's not true. They would never tell you that because though they love me, They know how human I am. Jesus' own brother died believing he was God. It wasn't Jesus' just closest family that Jesus had convinced of this. It was his closest disciples as well. John and Peter are disciples Jesus constantly let behind the curtain. He was constantly inviting them into spaces no one else was allowed. Go read the Mount of Transfiguration multiple places. And all of a sudden, this is what John, one of the closest disciples to Jesus, had to say. First John chapter three, verse five says this, in him, there is no sin. This is what he had to say after spending three years with bodily form Jesus. In him, there's not a dang thing of sin. And it's one thing to get John, who's also nicknamed the beloved on your side. Seems like a nice guy. He'd He'd probably round up on you. Peter? It's one thing to get John to round up. Peter, he's bound to come around and chop your ear off. (laughs) Peter's blunt. You know what Peter had to say? First Peter 2.22 says this, he never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. That's what Peter had to say about the character of Christ after spending three years with the man. Over and over, we get these stark character witnesses. And can I tell you right now, that's not even the biggest one to me. Judas has to be the largest one. You know what? Judas died believing that he betrayed an innocent man. Uh, for time's sake, I'm not gonna be able to go there to Matthew 27, but he, he died believing. He says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Therefore, I must take my own life. Judas has to be the most stark character witness of who Jesus actually was. But it's not just character witnesses. The third evidence is this, Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy. You understand that the Old Testament is full of these ancient predictions that predicted that the Messiah would do X, Y, Z, one, two, three. And Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament predicted, prophesied he would do. Now you may think, oh, Keenan, that's cool. But there's probably lots of people who have fulfilled the prophecies. They're just not as famous as Jesus, so we don't know about them. The probability is probably easy for someone to fulfill these prophecies. Greater minds than you have thought the same thing and done the math. There was a doctor by the name of Peter Stoner who was a professor of mathematics and science. He died in the year 1980, and he wrote a book before he died called Science Speaks. This is where this information comes from. And he wanted to figure out what is the mathematical probability of one man being able to fulfill any given number of Old Testament messianic, pertaining to the Messiah, prophecies. What's the mathematical probability? So all of a sudden, Peter Stoner gets a group of students together. He gets 600 undergrad and graduate level students together and they begin to run the numbers. And so they go, hey, let's start low. Let's do eight prophecies. What's the mathematical probability of one man being able to fulfill only eight Old Testament messianic prophecies. So they run the numbers and the numbers blow their minds. They come away with the fact that mathematically for one person to fulfill eight Old Testament prophecies, the probability of that is one in 100 million billion. Long odds. (laughs) One in 100 million billion. The equivalent of this, just so you can wrap your mind around this kind of number would be as if I took a one inch square piece of tile and on the back of it, I place a gold star and then I have quite a few other tiles. So all of a sudden I go, you know what? We're going to take these tiles, these one inch square piece of tiles, and we're going to tile this entire auditorium. And then after we get done with the auditorium, we're like, you know what? We still got some tile. Let's tile the whole building. And then after we get done with the building, you know, we're like, you know what? We still got more tile. Let's tile all of San Angelo. And then we get done with San Angelo and we're like, oh dang, we still got a lot more tile. Let's tile all of North America. And then we get done with North America and we still have more tile. So then we go into South America, And then we get done with South America and we have to go tile Africa. And then we get done with Africa and we got to go tile Europe. And then we get done with Europe and then we have to go tile Asia. And then we have to tile India. And then we tile Australia. And then we got to go buy a parka because it's going to be cold when we have to tile Antarctica. You literally tile the entire planet in one inch square pieces of tile. And on the back of one of those tiles is a gold star. And then I come up to you and I say, hey, I'll fund the whole project. I'll buy you as many planes as you need. I'll get you as many rental cars as you need to use. You can survey the whole earth looking at all the tiles, but you can only bend down, grab and turn over one. And it better be the one I put the gold star on the bottom of that is the mathematical probability of one man being able to fulfill eight Old Testament prophecies. But then Peter Stoner says, Let, why, why would we stop at eight? Let's go to 48 just for kicks and giggles. Let's go to 48. So then they begin to run the numbers on what would it be for a man to fulfill 48? And the numbers come back that for one man to fulfill 48 Old Testament prophecies, it is one in one trillion, 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 trillion. You literally have to say trillion 13 times. Again, long odds. The equivalent of this would be as if I got one atom and I spray painted it gold. And then I stuck that one atom in a space, the equivalent to one trillion, 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 billion times the size of our universe. And then all of a sudden I come and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, I have a spaceship. I'll give you as much rocket fuel as you want. You can go and survey this space that is one trillion, 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 billion, times the size of our universe. And you can go anywhere you want, but you can only open your porthole once. And you can only extend your tweezers one time and pull in one atom. And it better be the one I spray painted gold. This is the mathematical probability of one man being able to fulfill 48 Old Testament prophecies. Can I tell you right now? Jesus didn't just fulfill eight. And he didn't just fulfill 48. Can I tell you how many prophecies Jesus fulfilled? Over 300 Jesus fulfilled, I think the number is somewhere like 324 Old Testament messianic prophecies. Jesus did it. There's not an actual uh, 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 illustration I can conjure up to equate to what Jesus actually did. I can't make matter small enough and think of a space large enough to send you excavating to actually equate to what Jesus did. It's it, it's unfathomable. It's unimaginable. But Jesus did it. He really was born of a virgin. He really was born in the town called Bethlehem. He really did come riding in on a donkey. He really was betrayed by a close friend. He really was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He really did die having no bone broken. And he really did die having his hands and his feet pierced. Can I tell you when that, when that prediction was made that the Messiah would die with his hands and feet pierced, crucifixion hadn't been invented. No one had ever seen anyone die with their hands and their feet pierced, but yet the spirit of God came over a man named David in Psalm 22 and he told him the Messiah is gonna come and he'll die with his hands and feet pierced. Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy and this is where I land the plane. The fourth evidence that Jesus is God has to be his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. It's one thing for a man to die. It's a whole nother thing for a man to come back to life. And here's something really interesting. Not do we, not do we just have the, the New Testament that testifies that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. We have five ancient documents that if you do the dating on them, they date back to the same time the Bible was written. And they all say, these are extra biblical writings. These aren't writings you're gonna find in your Bible, but they all confirm that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified the way the Bible said he was crucified when the Bible said he was crucified. Not only that, but we have witnesses of the resurrection. Obviously there's Mary and the disciples, but you know what witnesses get me? The witnesses we find in Matthew 28. They're the guards that were put on on guard at the tomb. You didn't know this, but your Bible will tell you if you'd actually read it that these guards were put at the tomb because they had heard that Jesus was supposed to come back from the dead. So they put these guards in front of the tomb. And the Bible says this, that an angel came down and these guards saw it and the angel rolled the stone away and it scared these guards so bad they laid on the ground. These hardened Roman soldiers laid on the ground pretending to be dead. And when they got up the next day, they ran to the high priest and testified of what they just saw, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And you know what the high priest did? He said, we gotta cover this up. He said, I'll give you hush money. I'll pay you X amount for you to keep this quiet. In fact, we need to invent a story. Here's the story you're gonna tell people. You fell asleep and his disciples came and rolled the stone away while you were asleep and stole his body. And then they say, and if you're up, your your superiors give you a hard time about falling asleep, guess what? We'll pay them off too. And then the Bible would tell you, and this story is being perpetuated to this day. And you know why the lie had to be perpetuated? Because the truth was spreading like wildfire that Jesus resurrected. And the last thing about the resurrection I'll say is this, and I think it's the most powerful proof, is that we have nine within the New Testament and outside the New Testament, nine documents that testify of the conviction the disciples walked in concerning their witness of Jesus's bodily resurrection. Nine! There was a study done, by a psychological study done, and what they came away with is that no human being is capable of dying for what they know to be a lie. Human beings are not capable of dying for what they know is a lie when expressing the truth would save their life. You're not capable of it. Your psyche will not let you do it. You'll give up the truth. And it wasn't just one disciple that died for the truth of the resurrection, they all died for the truth of the resurrection. When recanting their witness of Jesus's bodily resurrection would have saved their life, they stood in the face of the powers that be and said, I guess you're gonna have to crucify me because I saw what I saw. I'll read you a list, Peter was crucified upside down according to church history. Peter said, I'm not worthy of being crucified in like manner to my Lord. You crucify me upside down, but I am not recanting my, my literal witness of his resurrection. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. And here's the kicker, as he's being crucified on an X-shaped cross for not recanting his witness of the resurrection, you know what he did while it took him forever to die? He preached the resurrection to the people crucifying him. James was beheaded, Philip was also crucified. Bartholomew was filleted. His skin was filleted and when that wouldn't kill him, they just ended up beheading him because he refused to recant the resurrection. Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, he didn't die a doubter. Thomas was killed with a spear. When recanting his witness, he was the one that had questions about the resurrection. He said, I won't believe Jesus has been resurrected unless I put my hand in his side and I stick my finger in the nail hole. And evidently he really did it because he was willing to die for it. Thomas, when it would have bought him a few more years to recant his witness of Jesus' resurrection, said, I'm not looking for an extension this side of the river. I'm going where my resurrected king is waiting for me. It wasn't just Thomas. Matthew was staked and speared into the ground. Jude was killed with an axe. Simon the zealot was cut in half with a saw when recanting his witness of the resurrection would have saved his life. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned, and John, the beloved, is the only disciple to not have died by martyrdom, but it wasn't because the powers that be didn't try to kill him. Church history, you're not gonna find this in your Bible, but church history tells us that the powers that be got John, Rome got John, and they tried to boil him alive in oil, and they mockingly called it his anointing because they knew that the Christians would anoint people with oil, but evidently John had an oil they didn't know about. Evidently, John had an anointing that doesn't come by mere human logic, that doesn't come by rationale. It comes by witnessing a resurrection. Every single one of them died for this. And you know how I know it's true? We are here 2,023 years later, still preaching the message they died believing they killed the messenger but they couldn't stop the message it has gone after generation after generation after generation and long after you and i become dust in some dirty old box six feet underground it will still be changing lives but because you can't stop the truth jesus is the way he is the truth and he is the he is the life. And listen to me, according to Peter Stoner, mathematically, you are sticking your head in the sand to not believe it, mathematically. And today I wanna give everyone a chance to say yes to this Messiah, to say yes to this miracle worker, to say yes to this resurrected King with every head bowed and every eye closed. I know I've gone a little over time, but I appreciate you listening. If you would say, Keenan, I need to give my life to this Jesus. That I believe what you're saying, that no one can come to God except by him. Can I tell you right now, you will one day stand before God. And God is gonna open a little book. You can read this in Revelation 20. He's gonna open a little book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And he's gonna look for your name. And if your name is in that book, he's gonna welcome you into heaven. But if your name is not in that book, can I tell you, this isn't popular preaching. But it's the truth, you know what awaits you? It's called the lake of fire. And it wasn't made for you. It was made for the enemy. It was made for the hordes of hell. But when you reject Jesus, that's the only place that's left to go. And now is your opportunity to say yes to him. And it's not about your church attendance. You can't attend enough church services to get your name written in the book. You can't donate enough dollars to get your name written in that book. It's what do you say about Jesus? That's what gets you written in that book. Faith in him and him alone. Thank you for listening to this message from Celebration Church. You can keep up with all that God is doing here at Celebration by following us on Facebook and Instagram.